to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. With the plethora of books published about the alleged Roswell crash in 1947, most people believe that this is the beginning of the modern UFO crash retrieval narrative. What if I told you that there had been several documented cases before Roswell, dating back to the 1930s and 40s? What about some dating back even further, to the 1800s and beyond? Today on the program, I'll be covering one such incident right in the heart of America and before World War II. I will also be recounting a witness testimony never before heard, so a world exclusive for you folks. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're all well. It's been a, uh, another fantastic full moon this week. Out, out there, if uh, you get a chance, make sure you go out and have a look at the full moon. It's been absolutely stunning here. It looks like uh, the neighbors got a got a light on in the yard. You know, it's it's really been one of those uh, amazing full moons. So um, yeah, that uh, as always, uh, that definitely ties in uh, with with the program and all things strange. Um, I'm not sure uh, what what kind of sightings people may have. Um, I know oftentimes with full moon you'll get uh, an increase in uh, all kinds of paranormal activity. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see if some more stories come out this week uh, that we haven't heard yet, folks. So, uh, you know, first off, uh, as usual, I wanted to give a few shout-outs uh, from, from the program. Um, I want to make sure I shout-out, uh, uh, give a hearty thanks, you know, again to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, uh, Chris in Illinois, Eddie in California, also Abby in California, and, um, of course, Scott in Missouri and uh, the uh, Old 77 podcast. And, Scott, you'll want to make sure that you uh, pay special attention to the, uh, the main topic of tonight's show because um, this uh, alleged UFO crash and retrieval is very close to your neck of the woods. I also just wanted to uh, say thank you, of course, to everyone who's taken their time to listen. It always means the world to me. It's, uh, it's always humbling, you know, to know that uh, people all over the world are listening to this program. Um, yeah, it's something else, you know, people in South America, people in Europe, um, obviously, uh, you know, people in the U.S., so, so thank you, you know, again, from the bottom of my heart. I couldn't, uh, couldn't do the program if it wasn't for all of the, the kind words and the support that I've had. Uh, I also want to say thank you to everyone who's gone over and followed the show on Instagram. Uh, you know, as I say again, it's an excellent resource for you to uh, keep up with the show. What are going to be some of the uh, upcoming topics and uh, so on? Uh, yeah, and and again, you know, it's it's just been really really amazing the uh, the support I've got over there. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you know, again, you can go over and follow follow the show on Instagram at the Paranormal Sun. Uh, you can also uh, go and find us on uh, Apple or um, uh, Spotify or any other. Any other uh, you know place where you listen to uh, podcasts, and you can give us a, a review. You know, make sure you uh, tell me what you think. 
But uh, of course, uh, you know, five-star reviews are always appreciated. For those of you who don't know, it's a bit of an algorithm. And um, if you don't have enough likes, you don't come up early in the search uh, results. So if someone searches for a paranormal podcast, um, if you don't have enough reviews, it, it won't come up, you know, in the in the first few results, no matter how good the uh, the grade is. And also, you know, if, if you really want to support the show, you can also head over to the Patreon link um, that's on the Anchor show notes. Um, definitely stay tuned. Hopefully next week I'll, I'll have some really good news to announce, you know, just about the show and the direction it's been taking. And, uh, you know, again, I, I do my best to uh, cover current events and make sure that I give you a dose of things you may not have heard of. Um, you know, like tonight's topic, it's not a... Uh, it's not a, a crash that, that many people have heard of outside of the community. And um, again, as, as always, you know, I, I've learned some more tonight in uh, doing the research for tonight's show. So, um, yeah, uh, on that note, you know, now we'll, now we'll get into the, uh, the news of the damned. And again, for those of you who haven't listened to the show before or don't know what the news of the damned is, uh, one of my biggest influences into... You know, becoming interested in paranormal and odd phenomenon from a young age was Charles Fort. And Charles Fort referred to any data that was ignored or uh, obscured by science as, as damned data. So that's why the, uh, the name of the segment is The News of the Damned. And again, every week, you know, I try and give you three, three uh, articles. I always provide the links in the show notes so that you can go over and read them yourselves. But... Um, just something interesting, you know, interesting topics that uh, I myself have, have found interesting and that I'm sure Charles Fort would. So the first article is from sciencealert.com, and uh, this was published on the 18th of December 2018, uh, and the writer was Peter Doctoral. Now, folks, uh, this is a bit of an older one, but um, I happened to be flipping through the news channels uh, the other night, um, U.S. News, and uh, because they, they can't broadcast U.S. commercials here, they will use a lot of filler material. So, you know, they'll, they'll have a little bit interesting little uh, few-minute segments. And so, you know, I, I only caught a little bit of this, and uh, so I went around looking online. So even though this is an older article, you're really going to find this fascinating. So um, this one is titled, A Scientist Claims the World's Oldest Pyramid is Hidden in an Indonesian Mountain. When Dutch colonists became the first Europeans to discover Gunung Mount Padang in the early 20th century, they must have been awestruck by the sheer scale of the ancient stone surroundings. Here, scattered across a vast hilltop in West Java province of Indonesia, lay the remnants of a massive complex of rocky structures and monuments, an archaeological wonder since described as the largest megalithic site in all of Southeast Asia. Now, for those of you who don't know much about Java or, you know, you most people have heard the name, uh, you know, it's connected to coffee. Uh, Java is one of the longest settled sites in Asia that they know of, uh, very rich volcanic soil. Uh, and for those of you who would have heard of Mount Krakatoa and several other, there's, there's another uh, super volcano that apparently went off um, a few hundred thousand years ago. And um, if you would have heard that story about the DNA of mankind being bottlenecked after this super, super eruption, this was in the same area of Indonesia. So, um, you know, anywhere that has heavy volcanic activity, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because the soil is very rich. But at the same time, you're always living with the, uh, you're always living in the shadow of the mountain, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, Java has long been one of the most heavily, uh, heavily dense, densely populated areas in the world because of all of the rice that they could grow um, in this area. So um, back to the article, it says, but those early settlers couldn't have guessed the greatest wonder of all might lay hidden buried deep in the ground below their feet. In a controversial new research presented at the AGU 2018 Fall Festival in Washington, D.C., sorry, fall meeting in Washington, D.C. last week, a team of Indonesian scientists presented data to make their case that Gunung Padang is, in fact, the site of the world's oldest known pyramid-like structure. Now, that's something else, folks, because um, everyone's heard of the pyramid in Egypt, and those go back around 4,500, 5,000 years at least. Uh, the ones in Mexico go back further, um, and there are other pyramid-like structures 
in other places that go back at least six, seven thousand years off the top of my head. So, so uh, yeah, that's quite a claim. So uh, back to the article, it says their research, which has been conducted over the course of several years, suggests that Ganung Padang is not the hill we think it is, but is actually a layered series of ancient structures with foundations dating back some ten thousand years or even older. Our studies proves that the structure does not cover up just the top, but also wrap around the slopes, covering about 15 hectares area at least. The authors write in the abstract for their new poster. The structures are not superficially, but rooted into greater depth. Using a combination of surveying methods, including ground penetration radar, seismic tomography, and archaeological excavations, the team said Ganang Padang is not just an artificial structure, but a series of several layers built over consecutive prehistoric periods. The topmost megalithic layer, made up of rock columns, walls, paths, and spaces, sits above a second layer some one to three meters below the surface. The researchers suggest this second layer has previously been misinterpreted as natural rock f formation, but it actually another arrangement of columnar rocks organized in a matrix structure. Below this, a third layer of arranged rocks containing large underground cavities or chambers extends as far as 15 meters deep. That's about 45 feet. And this sits upon the, the lowest fourth layer made of lava-tongue basalt rock, somehow modified or carved by human hands. According to the researchers, preliminary radiocarbon dating suggests the first layer could be up to approximately 3,500 years old, which would be about 1,500 B.C. The second layer, somewhere around the 8,000 years old, and the third layer in the vicinity of 9,500 to 28,000 years old, Okay, folks, look, that is something else, because for those of you who would have heard of Jericho, um, I know that when they excavated Jericho, they found that they that it went back about 8,000 years, okay? So although we're not talking about the city here, we're talking about a megalithic site. Uh, again, you know, you're talking about something 1,500 years before Jericho, and um, even Gobekli Tepe, you know, they're saying around 8,500 years. So this is another 1,000 years older. Uh, and up to 28,000 years old, which um, most archaeologists and paleontologists will tell you that 28,000 years ago, everyone was running around in grass skirts uh, with either bows and arrows or baskets picking fruit. So the fact that, you know, man um, could have built something like this that, that long ago, um, yeah, I'll, I'll get into it at the end of this article. But um, yeah, just, just understand the importance of those dates because that's that goes back a long long time as for the purpose of these ancient vast structures the researchers led by geophysicist Danny Hillman Natawidaja sorry from the Indonesian Institute of Sciences suggests the ancient pyramid could have had a religious basis it's a unique temple he told live science for now that speculation but if the researchers' other claims about the structures turn out to be right, it's a major finding that could challenge notions of what prehistoric societies were capable of. It's huge, he told the Sydney Morning Herald in 2013. People think the prehistoric age was primitive, but this monument proves them wrong. Still not everybody is convinced. Any shock to you folks? Anawaja's research has been the subject of much controversy in Indonesia and elsewhere, with a large number of archaeologists and skeptics criticizing the team's methods and findings. The latest research presentations, which for now remain non-peer-reviewed, will probably add fuel to the fire, but they also give the world a closer glimpse at what could be one of the world's most ancient and mysterious structures. As for what that structure really is, only time will tell. Okay, folks, so... Generally on this program, as you know, I present the facts or my findings, and I leave the decision-making up to you. In a very broad statement, however, I will tell you that I believe that mankind has been around and our ancestors were much more sophisticated than modern science wants to admit and likely will admit. I do find it quite interesting that, you know, when I was quite young, I remember reading about Sumeria, you know, so the societies that built the ziggurats and, um, yeah, you know, the ones that you would have heard of, um, that left the clay cuneiform tablet. So, you know, we're only going back about 6,000 years and everybody said that was the cradle of civilization. 
and over the last 20 years especially, that keeps getting pushed back further and further. So, you know, you've got Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which, um, you know, they're saying, I do believe I might have been a little bit off on my dates, but I think they said that the earliest might have gone back about 9,500 years. So all I'm saying, folks, is watch this space. Science is constantly finding out that things that they were told, uh, you know, by native peoples and, and others uh, weren't just hallucinations or myths or legends. I, I firmly believe that in most myths and legends, there is a kernel of truth. And um, again, I just find it fascinating that, uh, you know, we, we've, uh, we've got this other instance in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia. And I will tell you, folks, if there was a place that I could believe you could roll back the clock, it would be a place like Indonesia because, you know, it would have had a very fertile soil, as I say, a very warm climate. You're not talking about a harsh environment. And also, it's uh, although it's volcanic, although it's tropical, things like basalt stone and that, they're not going to corrode away. You know, you're not in an area like a desert or the Arctic where these things can get worn away. So, um, yeah, basically watch this space. And uh, if I get any updates on this, of course, I'll cover it. Now, the second topic um, on the news of the dam tonight, um, I just wanted to briefly say that I have looked into the Maje uh, UFO accounts in Brazil. And quite interestingly enough, like so many of these cases, the tap goes on and then the tap goes off. So, uh, look, I'm not sure if it's people not covering it because of what's been going on in the U.S. and uh, also the coronavirus. But I will tell you that there's very little new news coming out. Everything that I've been able to find uh, since the last program has just basically been rehashing of the same stories. So, um, you know, watch this space. And um, as I learn more, of course, as always, I'll share it with you, but um, there's no real updates this week for Manger. So the second article is from uh, Ripley's.com. So for those of you who haven't heard of it, but you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not. And um, this one was published on May the 6th of 2020. And this one is titled Tombstone Tourism is Booming. While diehard tombstone tourists have always felt at home in cemeteries, social distancing is bringing out a new crowd. A curious thing is happening at some of the oldest urban cemeteries in the U.S. They've become havens for cabin fever city dwellers. Thousands of cooped up people are flocking to, to them each week for a dose of fresh air, and families are bringing their children to release a little energy. Since occupants are six feet under, following the, strict, the strictures of social distancing proves a cinch. The new wave of visitors is quickly succumbing to the strange charms of tombstone tourism, also known as taphophilia, sorry, the love of cemeteries. The activity has always had a loyal constituency. The Facebook taphophilia page alone has more than 10,000 followers, yet it's not known what we'd call a mainstream American activity until now. While diehard tombstone tourists have always felt at home in cemeteries, social distancing is bringing out a new crowd. I wonder how many of them are going out after hours, folks, because uh, generally it's, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but nighttime in a cemetery is not where I want to be. The rise of tombstone tourists. From empty subway stations to deserted attractions like Paris's Plaque de Concorde and New York City's Times Square, social distancing comes with eerie lack of crowds where people once thronged, now empty sidewalks greet observers. Metropolises the world over have become ghost towns in the wake of COVID-19. Yet other unlikely places have seen a dramatic influx of visitors in recent weeks. Urban cemeteries. In Brooklyn, the 182-year-old Greenwood Cemetery has extended its visiting hours and opened all four gates to accommodate the flood of guests. There's a few more, uh, you know, paragraphs here, folks. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole article. It is quite long. But, um, you know, look, again, I am curious to see if with all of these people visiting cemeteries, if we'll see an upswing in paranormal activity, if we'll hear uh, more ghost stories or, um, you know, any anything out of the uh, ordinary coming out of these stories. So, um, you know, again, as always, I'll make sure that I keep my ear to the ground and I'll update you as we go on. And again, I'll, um, I'll add that to the show notes so you can follow it. Now, this one here, folks, this, this one sounds quite out there. So, um, again, 
my personal viewpoint is I'm not here to judge. I just present the articles. Uh, but this one, you know, you'll definitely want to take this with a grain of salt. Um, the web page by itself should uh, should uh, tell you uh, something along that because this is from AlienStar.org. And this article is titled, 12,000-year-old um, ancient underground tunnels discovered connecting Scotland with Turkey. It says it was published on May 21st, 2020. It says, Heinrich Kusch, a German archaeologist, has recently made a discovery that took the world by surprise. He discovered a network of underground tunnels that seemed to date well over 12,000 years ago in between Turkey and Scotland, connecting the two together. Now, I haven't read this article, folks, um, but that's quite a distance. You know, Turkey is s south of Europe, so, you know, it's down past Greece. And for it to go all the way through continental Europe into Scotland... If, in fact, this ends up being true, that would be one of the, you know, greatest archaeological finds ever, uh, unless it's explained to be, you know, uh, from underground aquifers or something else. But if this was carved by man or someone else, this is definitely, uh, you know, going to be a massive, um, massive find. So it says he went on as far as to write his own book and publish it, titling it The Secrets of the Underworld of an Ancient World. According to him, these tunnels could very well prove to be the key to finding out more about ancient history than we've ever known before. But it doesn't stop there. Although the main tunnels all lead from Turkey to Scotland and back, it needs to be stated that there is a series of tunnels that go all the way around Europe, connecting country to country in a sort of maze. Most of them seem to have been constructed in the Neolithic period, although the reasoning behind their construction is still rather unknown. What dangers could have led the people of Europe to create these underground tunnels? What could what could strike fear into their hearts to the point where they, they legit found no other way around it than to cower underground and hide away from the dangers? One theory that goes around and around nowadays is that a rather ominous and violent species of aliens have shown up at the time, and in retaliation the humankind had decided to hide away from the skies in the only place they could, underground. These tunnels are around 70 centimeters each, and most of them lead to places that we know used to be churches, cemeteries, and even middle of forests. This is definitely one of the many different mysteries that we need to find the answer to. Otherwise, we might end up having to seek refuge below the trenches before it's too late. So again, folks, look, I'll put a link in that to the uh, in the show notes. Um, as always, you know, folks, not everything online is as it seems. Um, I do know that there are many underground tunnels that people don't know about around the world, and many of them in areas where you wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, I know that there are, you know, underground tunnels uh, all over southern Europe, especially in parts of Greece and um, Italy. So, you know, the, the, the mere fact that there are underground tunnels doesn't shock me, but, you know, making a claim that they go all the way from Turkey to Scotland, Again, you know, I will reserve judgment, but um, that is a pretty, pretty massive claim to uh, to make that. So, um, yeah, there you have it, folks. There is the news news of the dam for today. Blue skies smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies do I see. Singing a song, nothing but bluebirds all day long. Never saw the sun shining so bright, never saw things looking so right. The year is 1941. The U.S. is just on the cusp of coming out of the Great Depression. Before World War II, most of the country is focused on trying to get their lives back on track, trying to become prosperous again. In April of 1941, Cape Girardeau, Missouri was a small farming service city of just under 20,000 souls on the mighty Mississippi River. Located approximately 115 miles or 185 kilometers southeast of St. Louis and 175 miles or 282 kilometers north of Memphis, Cape Girardeau has a long history going back to the French colonization in the 1700s and grew up as the river traffic did, from trading posts to bustling river port to local commerce hub. 
America was on the cusp of entering World War II, but most of the Midwest was still focused on life as usual and eking out a living from the rich black soil of the Grain Belt. On the evening of April 12, 1941, Reverend William Huffman was washing up and preparing for bed after reading and, and preparing the next week's sermon. The Reverend and his family had been in town a few months since he had transferred to the Red Star Baptist Church and was starting to get his weekly routine back in sync. The phone rang, and upon answering it, he found it was the local sheriff, who asked if he could come out to perform last rites on victims of a plane crash. The Reverend thought that it was odd that a plane with more than one occupant, like a crop duster or other type of work plane, would be flying so late in the evening, and especially in the relatively isolated area. After all, St. Louis was over a 100 miles away, and this was long before the days of regular air travel. Of course he agreed to perform the rites, and the sheriff said he could, he could send someone over in a car. The reverend prepared his coat and tools of his trade, and when he saw the headlights, he went out on the porch to greet the deputy. This is when he had his second in a long, long and ever more odd series of surprises. Rather than the standard patrol car, there was a black unmarked car in the driveway of his home at 1530 Main Street. The driver was not the deputy sheriff or anyone else he knew. As he approached the car, the driver addressed him as reverend and said he was there to take him to the scene of the accident. The reverend got inside and did not know what to expect next. He asked the driver what, what type of accident it was, and he reiterated it was a plane crash, and he had been asked to, to get the reverend to the scene as quickly as possible. The reverend estimated that the drive was 10 to 15 miles, or 16 to 22 kilometers, out of town towards Chaffee, Missouri, and the area was heavily wooded. As they approached, the reverend noticed the normal police and fire units one would expect, and he thought to himself, this is why the sheriff sent the man in the black car, probably a relative or visitor visitor to town that I haven't met. But then he spotted something strange, several FBI agents and also cameramen, and he thought, this must be some kind of crash. Little did he know how prophetic that thought would be. After parking and walking about a quarter of a mile or so off the road into an open field where the reverend saw a fire was burning, he saw several of the FBI agents combing through some wreckage. He explained who he was and why he was there and asked to be taken to the people who required him to perform the last rites. The agent looked at him and said, You are too late. All of the occupants have expired. Again, he thought this was an odd way to refer to passengers of an airplane. The agent asked him if he would say some prayers over the three dead bodies, and of course he agreed, and was led a short way to where there were some bodies covered by sheets. He began to prepare his prayers, but, but was becoming distracted by the commotion going on not far from where he stood, on his left about 20 to 30 yards away. He looked up, and there in the gloom he saw the craft for the first time. He expected to see a small plane, but instead he was shocked yet again. There, plowed deep into the rich black Missouri soil, was a dish-shaped object, straight from the pages of a science fiction novel. The reverend stopped what he was doing and slowly made his way over to the disc. He stared intently at the object, drinking in every detail of the smooth circular craft. He was amazed by how smooth it looked. He couldn't see any welds, welds or rivets. He was shocked at how shiny it was and no sign of paint or markings on the outside. Slowly he was drawn to the inside of the craft. As he peered inside he saw strange markings that he described as hieroglyphic and he could not understand any of it. He also saw wires and, and components of some sort as well as bizarre knobs and dials. Reverend William Huffman knew that now that this craft was nothing that mankind could have made anywhere on earth. He then walked back over to the bodies, covered by the sheet, and slowly lifted the sheet. Underneath were two strange creatures about four feet tall, hairless, with large eyes and a slit mouth, and small ears. He saw a third creature not far away, shallow breathing and obviously near death. He took the wrist of this creature and prayed for him. Soon after he prayed over the entity, it passed away. He knew that he could not perform the last rites, but he still prayed over the bodies. Soon after the military arrived, most likely from the Sykeston Air, Air Base, which was around 50 miles away. The military surrounded the area, took the people on the scene off in groups separately, and spoke to each of them. Reverend Huffman didn't know what was said to the others, but he was told, This didn't happen. You didn't see this. This is national security. It is never to be talked about again. The Reverend was an honorable man, being a preacher. That's all he needed to, be, to have said to him. 
Soon after this, the Reverend was hurried back to a waiting car and taken back home. He was so awestruck by the entire event that he barely mumbled thank you to the driver upon being dropped off at home. He came inside the house and told the story to his two sons and his wife who was expecting at the time, so she was off in the bedroom. After that night, he said that he would never speak about it again, as he was asked not to by the military. About two weeks later, around 8 or 9 p.m., someone knocked at the door. A man was at the door and asked if he could speak with the Reverend in private. He seemed very nervous and apprehensive. They went into another room, and a short time later, the man left. William's wife asked him, What was that about, Bill? To which he replied that the man had been at the crash scene on the night and had taken a photograph with his own private camera, and it was small enough that he could hide it from the military as they searched him by keeping it in his coat. The photo was of two men, one on each side, holding up one of the creatures. The man had asked the reverend if he would keep the photo, and he said that humanity needs to know what happened here. In 1991, the late Leonard Stringfield, an early UFO investigator and former civilian consultant to the UFO operations at Wright-Patterson Air Base in Dayton, Ohio in the 1950s, published an account of the alleged 1941 UFO crash near Cape Girardeau. Stringfield's article appeared in the July 1991 issue of His Status Report, a monthly publication on UFO activities and investigations. The article was based on information received by Charlotte Mann, who was a young child living in Cape Girardeau in 1941. At the time, Charlotte's grandfather, the Reverend William Huffman, was pastor at, at, Cape, at the Cape's Red Star Baptist Church. In 1984, Charlotte's grandmother was dying of cancer. Over the course of several days, Charlotte wore down her resolve and got her to discuss what had happened on the spring evening in 1941. It is important to note that this is not the only time Charlotte was exposed to this story. During her childhood, she had heard bits and pieces during conversations of her father and uncle, and when Floyd was dying, pressed her to fill in the spe specific details as to what really happened. It took a fair amount of pleading with her grandmother initially to convince her to violate the commitment she had made to her husband so long ago not to speak of it. Eventually, Charlotte succeeded in extracting the story. She kept after the story for several days, clarifying with her grandmother, until Charlotte was confident that she completely understood what had happened and all of the details. One of the most intriguing aspects is that after the crash event, a member of, of the congregation, believed to be Garland E. Fronneberger, gave Reverend Huffman a photo of the dead non-human creature, as discussed earlier. The following is the story in Charlotte's own words as recorded for a television documentary. I saw the picture originally from my dad, who had gotten it from my grandfather, who was a Baptist minister in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, in the spring of 1941. I saw that picture and asked my grandmother at a later time, when she was at my house, fatally ill with cancer, so we had a frank discussion. She said that grandfather was called out in the spring of 1941 in the evening around 9 to 9.30 p.m., that someone had been called out to a plane crash outside of town and would be and would he be willing to go to minister to people there, which he did. Upon arrival, it was a very different situation. It was not a conventional aircraft, as we know it. He described it as a saucer that was metallic in color, no seams, did not look like anything he had ever seen. It had been broken open in one portion, and so he could walk up and see that. In looking inside, he saw a small metal chair, gauges and dials, and things he had never seen, including what looked like a gyroscope. However, what impressed him most was around the inside there were inscriptions and writings, which he said he did not recognize, but were similar in e is similar to Egyptian hieroglyphs. There were three entities, or non-human beings, lying on the ground. Two were just outside the saucer, and a third one was further out. His understanding was that perhaps the third one was not dead on impact. There had been mention of a ball of fire, yet there was, there was fire around the crash site, but none of the entities had been burned. And so Father did pray over them, giving them his, the last rites. There were many people there, fire people, photographers, and so they lifted up one and two men on either side, stood him up, and they stretched his arms out. They had him up under the armpits and out there. As I recall from the picture I saw, he was about four feet tall, appeared to have no bone structure, soft-looking. He had a suit on, or we assume it was a suit. It could have been his skin and hat looked like crinkled soft aluminium foil. I recall it had very long hands, very long fingers, and I think that there were three, but I cannot swear to that. 
Other living supporting witnesses include Charles Mann's, Charlotte Mann's sister, who confirms her story in a notarized affidavit, and the living brother of Cape Girardeau County Sheriff in 1941, Clarence R. Shod. These witnesses and the others that were there should have been there or likely would have known about this crash event will be examined later. So that was Charlotte's own account, folks. Charlotte retells the story of the alien photograph and how she came to be first aware of it. Well, the first awareness that I had of it is actually a picture that my father had, and it was at a dinner party. And I had heard rumors and bits and pieces over conversations. But it was a picture, an old picture, because it had, it was like the old Kodak, with the little lines and scallops around it. There were two men holding up a non-human, is the best way that I can describe it. Little entity, a little person, who appeared to be about four feet tall. They had, they had him under the armpits, with arms outstretched on either side of him, and he was, it was difficult to tell if it was his skin or a suit. It looked as if he had no bone structure, very, very long arms. I vaguely remember three fingers, but I couldn't swear to that. He had the oval eyes this way, a slit for a mouth, and it looked like two little dots where his ears should be. And his skin looked as if it were soft, crinkly aluminium foil, not, not that thick. I remember at the time it making a large impression on me because of the eyes, so I can't tell you what his feet were like because I didn't see that. Well, it never actually left me. That picture haunted me for the rest of my life. Charlotte's father, Guy Huffman, had told the crash retrieval story and had offered the photograph as proof to a photographer friend of his in the 1953 to 1955 time frame. The photographer's name was Walter Wayne Fisk. The photo was never returned, and Fisk has ignored all requests from Charlotte asking about this photo. Stanton Friedman, also recognizing the importance of this photo, tracked down Fisk in New Mexico and spoke with him on the telephone, where a strange tale emerged. Fisk stated that he had a doctorate in, in psychology, yet Friedman was unable to verify his claim, along with Fisk's statements that he had been an advisor to several presidents. What other evidence is there? Well, folks, I dug up a few more fascinating tidbits about this online that even I, with uh, all of my background in the field and being a lifelong uh, fanboy of uh, the unexplained in UFOs, had never heard mentioned before. Now, take all of these with a grain of salt, please. Uh, the sources I have found believe that these documents are about 95% or more uh, chance of being authentic. The first public evidence of this is the February 1942 LA air raid. In this case, for a couple of hours, a slow-moving craft was illuminated with spotlights. 1,430 rounds of ammunition were fired at it. Many clear direct hits, according to witnesses, of the disc-shaped object. George C. Marshall then writes a secret memo to the president about the event. However, what is fascinating is that this memo sets up the authentication of a leaked, top-secret memo that tells a different story of crash recoveries. J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI also weighs in on notion of crashes before Roswell, and with his handwritten statement at the end of, of, the, of a declassified memo requesting involvement with UFO cases by the Air Force, by saying, I would do it, but before agreeing to it, we must insist on full access to disks recovered. For instance, in the L.A. case, the Army grabbed it and would not let us have it for cursory examination. The critical debate here is, what does L.A. case mean? Now that's capital A and small, or capital L, small case A, folks. Is it, the, is it the Los Angeles because of the air raid, Los Alamos because that is where Roswell wreckage was claimed to be taken, or Louisiana? Odds favor Louisiana because that is the right mailing format for the time. And that's the first thing that came to mind to myself when I saw capital, a, capital L, small, small case A, I immediately thought of Louisiana. Counterintelligence Corps agent Cantell, from the Tim Cooper documents, talks about a captured disc in Louisiana in 1942. Yet the most stunning evidence for pre-Roswell events comes from that of elite military and presidential elect intelligence documents. Now again, folks, this is the first I've heard of this 1942 Louisiana uh, crash disc that was retrieved. I've never heard of that in, you know, 35 plus years of studying this. So um, I'll definitely be doing my best to look into it. I would imagine that there will be very little to find on it. However, I'll do my best to dig something up. Next, we come to a memo addressed to the Non-Terrestrial Science and Technology Committee on White House Stationery, dated February 22, 1944, 
which is stamped double top secret and signed by FDR. So FDR was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the president at the time. This memo says that before we can exploit these super weapons of war, we need to win the war first. It goes on to say that well, once we have won the war, the U.S. will assume its destiny. There will be a time when surplus funds will be available, and finally, FDR commends the committee for its work. The Oppenheimer-Einstein draft memo, dated simply June 1947, has the first discussion of extraterrestrial biological entities, or EBEs, in the UFO literature. Critics have attacked this document because of misspelling of celestial, yet at the same time discounted the very real possibility that it was dictated to a secretary and that the document is only a draft copy. Powerful, compelling evidence in favor of authenticity is the unique language used, words such as supernational. Magic Eyes Only Presidential Briefing dated September 24, 1947. Mission Assessment of Recovered Lenticular Aerodyne Objects. White House Intelligence Estimate. Two sections directed cite the 1940 recovery case, 1941 recovery case. The first is in Part 3, Scientific Probabilities, and the second in Part 5, National Security Structure. Part 3 states, Based on all available evidence collected from the recovered exhibits currently under the study by AMC, AFSWP, NEPA, AEC, ONR, NACA, JRDB, RAND, USAAF, which is U.S. Uh, Army Air Force, SAG, and MIT, are deemed extraterrestrial in nature. The conclusion was reached as a result of comparison of artifacts from the Missouri discovery in 1941. The technology is outside the scope of U.S. science, even that of German rocket and aircraft development. In the early months of 1942 up until present, intrusions of unidentified aircraft have occasionally been documented, but there have been no serious investigations by the intelligent arm of the government. Even the recovery case of 1941 did not create a unified intelligence effort to exploit possible technological gains and exception, with the exception of the Manhattan Project. So aside from those documents, folks, which many people claim to be true, but, um, you know, you never know, what else do we have? What other type of evidence do we have? Well, we have some circumstantial evidence, and one of those is that the Cape Girardeau police chief in 1941 was Marshal F. Morton. What is interesting about Morton is that after this event is that he was selected to, to attend the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and he spent two years there on and off between 1941 and 1946. Now, does this appointment seem logical for a very small Midwestern town and a sheriff of no real no real known, uh, you know, talents. It's not like this was someone famous or someone who had a famous relative or a politician who could help get him this appointment. Now, there's also the case of Linda Wallace from Sykeston, Missouri, and she tells of the fact that her father, who worked at the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics in Sykeston when she was very, very young, and that she he may have had access to information about a downed UFO between Cape Girardeau and Sykeston. She claimed that on his deathbed, her father confessed that the 1941 crash was absolutely and completely true. Linda also discovered that sometime in the 1990s, the fire and police documents in Sykeston had all files for the entire year of 1941 disappear. So there were basically files there that said 1941, but inside there was no documentation. All records are also missing for the 1941 Missouri Institute of Aeronautics, so everything from that year from the institute where her father met, worked is missing. All microphone backups of the Sykeston newspaper from around the time of the crash were also not in the library, and she could find no other gaps in the newspaper dates from other years. Linda has also heard stories of a man in Sykeston who claimed to have picked up bodies after the crash in 1941. She found him in a nursing home and had a brief talk with him, but soon after his Alzheimer's took a turn for the worse and she could never verify his story further. Now, folks, from everything that I've studied and everything that I've learned, uh, there's, you know, there's definitely some compelling things here. Now, again, you've got to remember that this is a time in American history that people were taught to believe and trust the government 100 uh, percent. Many of my family members were alive during this time, and the ones that I've talked to have always said that, you know, they were raised and taught to uh, trust 
U.S. agents, whether it was government or military. And so if you were asked to shut up, you shut up. There was no need for real threats at this time. But also the Reverend Huffman claims that there were NDAs signed or non-disclosure agreements between the people and uh, the government. Now, folks, I've listened to a fair amount of Charlotte Mann's uh, testimony on this. There's a good bit of it online, and I've never met Charlotte, but um, from everything I've heard, you know, she is a typical down-to-earth um, Midwestern woman. I don't see any reason why she would lie. I don't see anything that she would gain. Uh, she hasn't, you know, written books, released books that I know of out there. She just wants the story to be told correctly. You know, she's, she said multiple times, when people get things wrong in this story, it's very difficult for her because they're talking about her family. Um, you know, Charlotte also discussed a few things on some of the, you know, recordings that I've heard that uh, isn't, you know, common knowledge. And one is that the family has been visited um, and had some abduction cases uh, from the time of the crash, you know, more in the 50s and 60s. Uh, now, one thing that is often discussed, uh, you know, in these type of cases is people who have, uh, you know, close encounters and especially very close contact with these beings, whether they're alien or whatever, uh, they tend to then have their family followed throughout the decades by these beings who monitor the family and have interactions with them. So, uh, you know, just, just bear that in mind that this is another part of the case that hasn't, uh, you know, been fully explored. Now, both Leonard Stringfield and some other people who have had dealings with Charlotte Mann also think that um, she's a very credible witness and that there's definitely something to this. Again, you know, I would ask you that what does a reverend of the Baptist Church have to gain by making up a story like this? He told his family once and then never wanted to repeat the story again. And, it, and his wife only, after a lot of cajoling by a family member, actually repeated the rest of the story to... Um, to Mrs. Mann. So, you know, what, what does the family gain by this? Now, folks, what uh, I'm sure a lot of you have been waiting for is my own recounting of a story from a purported witness. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older and I have a lot of family members who are older than most. So, you know, in their living memory, um, you know, they lived through things like the Great Depression and World War II. So a very close family member of mine who has now passed on, um, he served in World War II, and after World War II, his family had a trucking business in central Illinois. And he would often do, you know, runs of cattle and uh, hogs and other, uh, you know, foodstuffs from central Illinois to St. Louis and back. Now, he recounted to me that sometime in 1947 or 1948, but he really thinks it was 1947, that, um, you know, as it was often the case back at that time, you would go into a truck stop for a meal, uh, you know, and have a rest and catch up with other truck drivers and, you know, just get to know them and kind of chew the fat. Well, um, he said that he went into a truck stop outside of St. Louis and, um, you know, he, he started talking with a couple of the truckers who were in there. And one man was from the local area. And again, uh, you know, uh, this member of my family, he was, he was from uh, Illinois. So he started talking to this man. And they, you know, they found out that they had both served in the Army in World War II in Europe. So, you know, this opened a little bit of a rapport. And, um, you know, he, he continued to talk to this gentleman. And um, this this. Uh, individual in my family, he had a friend, a lifelong family friend who lived in New Mexico. And again, he'd served in World War II and he spent most of the time after the war in New Mexico. And I've been there to visit the family many times. Um, he's since passed on. Well, he had recounted to this individual of my family, you know, about the purported crash at, crash at Roswell, um, what had come out in the paper anyway, you know, that, um, you know, supposedly the army had captured this flying disc and that, uh, after that it was, um, you know, that was the end of it and that they said that it was a crashed, um, balloon. So, you know, this member of my family mentioned to this gentleman, uh, this other truck driver, he said, uh, yeah, he goes, you know, can you believe that, that, you know, some people think that a UFO crashed and, you know, he goes, what was it? Little green men and everything else. Well, he recounted to me that this gentleman's face then turned very serious and very pale, and he said, 
no, he goes, um, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Um, I, I believe it. And so, you know, uh, again, this, this member of my family, he's always been a bit of a, um, you know, show me, <laughs> show me or I don't believe. Well, he said, you know, he kind of questioned this guy and he says, oh, come on. You know, we were both in the army. Um, I didn't see anything, did you? And he said, no, I saw something before I joined the army. And he recounted the fact that he was a native of Cape Girardeau and that he had lived there. And that when he was younger, so when he was in his uh, mid-teens, uh, there was all kinds of commotion around town that there had been this craft uh, that had crashed outside of town and that uh, the reverend was taken there to you know, give last rites to these beings that were from out, out, of, um, out of this world. They weren't from Earth. The people at the time did not refer to them as aliens or greys or anything like that. They all called them little people. And so he said, um, you know, he had heard many times from his father and his father's friends that, um, you know, there were these little people and that the, uh, the military from Sykeston came along and took these creatures off. It was also recounted to this member of my family that he knew several people who worked in a civilian capacity in and around the Sykeston Air Base. And one of these people had asked, you know, jokingly had asked one of the, um, the airmen at the field who was uh, a officer. He said, oh, well, what did you do with those little people? And this officer got deadly serious with him. He goes, there were no little people. Stop spreading rumors about this uh, or you won't have a job uh, as far as uh, supplying the airbase. And, of course, he took that extremely seriously, and he never mentioned it again. So, um, you know, this member of my family, he didn't get much more out of the individual, and he never found out his name. He just recounted to me that he was a, you know, a man about his age. So at this time, you know, he would have been in his uh, early 20s, and that, um, you know, uh, he was from Cape Girardeau, and that his family and many members uh, had, you know, basically sworn that this craft had crashed, and that, um, you know, there were entities recovered. Well, folks, you know, um, what are we left with here? Is it a hoax, urban legend, a tall tale? Or was it literally something out of this world? Is it possible that six years before Roswell, this craft crashed with beings from somewhere beyond? You be the judge. At the end of the day, that's what this program is always about. I leave it up to you. So with that, everyone, I hope that you have a brilliant week. Uh, I'll do my best to get another episode out as soon as I can. Uh, again, uh, apologies, but at this point, I don't quite have worked out what I'm going to do for the next program, but I'll update you within a few days. So uh, as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and until next time.